0: So we are... Uh, the rest of us, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. We are in John chapter 3 today. As we work our way through the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, last week we talked about probably the greatest verse uh, that people know about, at least in, in the New Testament, John 3.16, about the need for the new birth. We've seen this so far in the, in the Gospel of John. We, we've seen this, this is who Jesus has, has, uh, has been. We see that John the Baptist early on in Jesus ministry in the gospel of John is the herald of Jesus he's the herald of the Messiah and so when G- and when John the Baptist sees Jesus from afar he says behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world i mean that's who Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and and John is the the precursor the the Elijah if you will that was prophesied in the old testament to speak about Jesus and we, we've seen Jesus, you know, his first miracle was to, to take away the shame of the bridegroom at a wedding party where he turned all of that uh, water into wine, the best wine that everyone, anyone has ever tasted. And he took away the shame. And then the following uh, week, we, we learned about Jesus cleansing the temple, that he was zealous for his father's house, for the worship of the triune God. And he, he didn't want anything to get in the way of true worship. He wanted worship to be for his father's glory and only for that. And then last week we saw that Nicodemus, uh, you know, we call him Nick at night. That's where the the term came from, right? Uh, Nick at night. You know, Nick came at night uh, and he was wondering who Jesus was. And so he says, teacher, rabbi. And Jesus basically says, look, if you're not born again, you're not going to be able to know or see the kingdom of God. And, And Nicodemus is bewildered by that. And he wonders, what is going on? How how do I do these things? And again, Jesus goes into this idea that you must be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom and you cannot enter in the kingdom. You must be born again. And in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's where we are. Now, everything that is written... And the Gospel of John has this purpose behind it. John chapter 20, verse 30 says this. This is the purpose statement of the Gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything, everything that is written in the Gospel of John is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And when he says life in his name, life that is filled with forgiveness and purpose and love and grace and mercy, this overflowing, abundant life. And so we get to John chapter 3, and we are... um, you know, really, I'm going to focus in on John 2, uh, 3, through 36 today. So hear the word of the Lord. So after this, and again, that's after this, all these things I've just talked about, right? After all these things, right? After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim. Because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, with regard to that section, verses 322 through chapter, uh, verse 30, We get a commentary in the Gospel of John regarding that section of Scripture. And here it is. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon Him. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Would you pray with me as I jump into this? Father, as we think about the last testimony that we find from John the Baptist within Scripture, Father, I pray, Lord, that it would be the testimony of our own hearts as well, that Jesus must increase while we decrease. Father, may we make much of the glory of God. May we make much of Jesus our Savior. And Father, I pray, Lord, that for those who are listening, that they would fall more in love with Jesus And Father, for me, I pray, Lord, for clarity of thought, and lucidity of speech, that I might be able to faithfully proclaim your word. Lord Jesus, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you see what's going on right here, right? So after everything that happened um, in Jerusalem, after the Passover, we find that Jesus goes out into the Judean countryside, and he's baptizing. Now, it's interesting... Uh, If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, we find that Jesus' disciples are baptizing, but Jesus is not. In chapter 4, verse 2, it actually says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Can you imagine just for a second if one of the disciples was the one who was baptized by Jesus? I mean, if it was Peter, he'd be like, no, 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 I got baptized by Jesus. I'm in charge of everything now, right? Right? Like Nobody else was baptized. But, so the disciples are baptizing. John the Baptist is also baptizing. And you can find this, and this is a very simple passage for us to understand, but it's a very difficult thing for us to actually execute with regard to living faithfully. And it is, is this, is that John's disciples are baptizing, and what they're seeing is, is that more people are going to Jesus than they are to John the Baptist. And so the problem is, John's disciples are worried about market share. You see this, right? They're worried about market share. And why are they worried about market share? Because they're hoping that John the Baptist, they can ride on the coattails of John the Baptist as he ascends in power and influence. And they know that if you know, Jesus you know, begins to take over some of the glory, and again, these two places, the, the, um, the places that they're talked about, are not very far apart, but what you're finding is that the market share is diminishing for John the Baptist, and it's increasing for Jesus, and they have a lot of fear and angst, and really, they're probably pretty angry about this. And then in the midst of this, they begin to argue, like, well, you know what, um, remember, like, we're the ones who are only eating uh, honey and wild locusts. I mean, you got, that, you got that patent pending, right, John? Like, Jesus isn't going to take that away from you, is he? You know, like, how is Jesus going to become greater? What about us? What about us? And they're worried about their own fame and their own glory. And what John says is he says, look, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Now, here's the issue, and I'm going to jump right to application in the midst of this sermon. Right to application. It's this. How many of us um, fall into the comparison trap in our lives? The comparison trap. Like, we fall into this idea that we make ungodly comparisons in our own lives. Um, Here's one. Like, what happens when you, um, and let me me just quote an article by um, Julie Lowe, who's a counselor for CCF. She talks about comparison. She says, comparison is a common human struggle, right? Like, we all struggle with this, right? We all struggle with comparison. We look to those around us to assess whether we are okay, not okay, or really not okay. Okay. Perhaps we thought we were okay until we opened up Facebook or Instagram and saw the beautiful new addition someone put on their home or the all inclusive vacation they were enjoying. Consider these common situations, and some of you have found yourself in these common situations, right? A child delights in their drawing but crumples it up after looking at someone else's. A teenager surfs social media looking for ways to improve her looks, possessions, or number of followers. A college student works hard but is discouraged when he learns of his peers' academic or sports accomplishments. How about this one? A mom listens to other moms talk about their children's accomplishments and suddenly feels inadequate in her parenting. Any moms ever feel that way? I can say, truthfully, I've never felt that way because I've never been a mother, but... um A husband attends his men's group but fearing rejection, he withholds his struggles at work or in his marriage. A homeowner works hard and is proud of what they have until opening up better homes and gardens and realizes that it's not as good. Maybe it was the happy family photos or the encouragement of an engagement, a pregnancy, or a child's acceptance into a prestigious college. Suddenly, inadequacy hits, discontentment arises, or feelings of envy strike us. How does comparison threaten to undo you, and it will undo you. Let me just um, say, for example, um, like these right here. Like I know that uh, Marcus was talking about some of the benefits of media, so let me just talk about this. These things are killing us. The more you're on this phone, not this one, this is mine, okay? Don't take it. Uh, I need it, all right? The more you're on this, the levels of anxiety... The levels of depression and the levels of, of loneliness and, and angst rise dramatically. Every study says it. And yet, we can't get off of this. Just a few stats just to, so that you learn something today. You know, uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but there's this thing called a selfie, right? Right? You know that 92 million are taken every day. 92 million. And that individual spend 54 hours of year taking selfies. Just so you know, uh, I also want you to know this that the Eiffel Tower is the most popular destination for selfies in the world, Eiffel Tower. How about this one? Did you know that selfies, um, besides leading to comparison, because whenever you're taking a selfie or a lot of selfies, more than half, two-thirds of selfies are actually touched up. They're actually Photoshopped. And what happens is people are taking selfies of themselves to put online to say, this is my best life. And what's happening is we begin to compare what we don't have to what someone else has, and it's a dangerous place. But not only dangerous, like in a, did you know that 43 people die taking selfies every year? I just want you to think about that. Because here's what happens you know, you get near the Grand Canyon and you want to get a little closer, and a little closer, and a little closer, and then you have 43 people, 60% of them die, of those 43 people, 60% of them actually die in India. I think it's like 7% in Pakistan, and then the United States is following hard at 6%, but don't worry, Pakistan, we're coming for you, right? Like We're coming for you. Let me just explain something um, You know, for, for, for men who are taking selfies, because most guys don't know how to do it. Here's how you're supposed to do it. You actually take it, and I want you to take it, and I want you to you go a little bit lower, and you go a little bit lower, and then you put it down like this, and you never take it because you're a man and you should never do it, <laughs> okay? just That's how you're supposed to do it. I'm just trying to help you out there, okay? <laughs> but in all seriousness, and when we think about the comparison that we have, you know, comparison, it becomes your standard of measuring significance and meaningfulness when we compare ourselves to others in other circumstances. Does your life's value increase or decrease when compared to that of another? If so, you are living your life before the face of man, not the face of Of God. Let me give you four lies that comparison breeds. Four lies that we see. First, jealousy and envy. We think when we compare ourselves to others that what they have is better. You grow to believe that good things are given to others but not to you. It enslaves you to covet or strive after attaining what another person has. Jealousy and envy. That's the first lie. The second lie is discontentment. When you see somebody else who has something, what I have is less than. You look to this world and all it offers to satisfy and bring meaning or purpose, whether that is in wealth or status or relationships, you begin to believe that God is withholding good from you. And don't we see that as the original lie that happened in Genesis 3? that God is actually withholding something from Adam and Eve. And so Eve, with Adam right next to her, believed that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they will become like God, and that God is withholding. And so it leads to discontentment, and we see this occurring. Comparison is, again, I would call it satanic. So not just jealousy and envy, but not only discontentment, but the third one is this, inadequacy. You feel inadequate when we compare ourselves. Who, who I am is less than. You believe you can never measure up. You feel inadequate in your marriage, in, in parenting, or life circumstances. And insecurity takes root within your heart and within your soul. And you feel inadequate and insecure when you compare yourselves to other people. And again, most of the time we compare ourselves to people who have more than us. So that we think, oh, if I can just get that, then I'll be happy. That's, that's false. That's an idol. Um, there's a lack of authenticity. That's another lie. You struggle to be vulnerable or transparent so no one will know your flaws. Struggles, weakness, and brokenness are seen as defects needing to be concealed. So rather than being authentic about who you are and the sins and the struggles that you have, you can't allow anyone else to know how, how big a struggler you are Because you've been comparing your life to other people and and other marriages to other people and other children to other children and, and situations to other situations. And you go, I can't let anybody know that I'm struggling this deeply. And so, what happens is you live an inauthentic life. Matter of fact, your life lacks integrity or wholeness. We see that through comparison. When we fall into comparison, we shift our desire to evaluate ourselves honestly to competing against other people. They become a threat to us or a measuring stick. Now think about that. Like when we um, are, are doing this, God calls us to something else. He calls us to live together with differences, strengths and weaknesses, blessings and struggles, success and failure, and we are to do so in unity and with the desire to move one another towards Christ's likeness as we value others above ourselves. Now think about that. Like we're all different. We all have different abilities, skills, gifts, and abilities. We all have those and we're supposed to live together and rather than being you know, competitors, we're meant to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet what happens through comparison is we begin to think that we have rivals and competitors and we live in a culture that says we have to win at all cost. Win, 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 win. You know, if, if you ain't first, you're last. Anybody ever heard that? You know, if you're not first, you're last. Man, it's a wicked, wicked thing. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Or in this way, you think about this. In Ecclesiastes, the writer um, says, Two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Rather than competing against each other, we should come alongside and build each other up. But how? How do we do that? Again, let me just talk about application here. Again, this is taken from an article by Julie Lowe. Um, And so, again, I, I totally believe what she's saying here when she says, First, when you recognize comparison, first, confess how easy it is to allow the things of this world to occupy and distract you from the things of the Lord. Lay down your desires, discontentment, jealousy, and inadequacy before the Lord. Cast your cares upon Him and experience the freedom He offers when you are not heavy laden with the burden of comparison. And brothers and sisters, isn't it heavy? Two, healthy, godly evaluation can be good when it reorients priorities. Remember where your treasure lies. You will not find it in this life but it will be there waiting for you and will be far better than anything you can strive for now. Again, she's saying that healthy, godly evaluation can be good when it reorients our priorities. Uh, this week we were at a men's uh, thing, and uh, one of the thoughts uh, Bill Wilson asked me, he says, can you, can you be a good zealot? And I'm like, yeah, as long as you're zealous for the Lord. Like, if you're zealous for, for God and for his glory, then that's a good zeal, Right? The problem is is that most of our zeal is pointed inward, and we are zealous for what we want, how we want it, when we want it, rather than being zealous for God's glory. That's the problem. But when we confess and we evaluate, and when it reorients our priorities heavenward and towards God, then it's a good thing. Three, deflect the comparison others might place upon you. There will be people who try to make comparisons with you, your choices or your life. Rebuff any attempt to allow your life to be measured by that of another. That is huge, okay? Rebuff, rebuff any attempt to allow your life to be measured by that of another. You cannot allow that another person to have that much say so in your life and in your heart and in your mind. Again, your identity is wrapped up in Christ if you are in the Lord. And then lastly, she she says, live before the face of God, not others on Facebook. Long to reflect God's character and his ways in your life. Fix your eyes on what is unseen, not what is seen. I think those are really, really helpful. Now, let's go back to John chapter 3 for a second, because in this sense, you know, I was talking about more of a personal application. Notice what we see that's going on here. Notice that comparison certainly happens personally, but in John chapter 3, um, a, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan. So in the midst of, you know, um, ministry, well, certainly, certain, I being mean, facetious here, okay, Certainly, within the church, there's no comparison, right? Certainly, among the people of God, there would be no wicked comparison of other people, right? Man, if you believe that, I mean, the church. I mean, I I think about this, and, and you know, pastors are not immune to this at all. Like, I see, or like... I will read commentaries, I will listen to preachers preach, and I will be envious of their abilities to expound the Word of God. Like every time I read something by Charles Spurgeon, I'm like, he's just so much smarter than I am. He's more eloquent. And I mean he's British, you know, so he speaks better English than I do, but I mean just what he writes is just, it's it's incredible. And yet that's what's going on in the midst of the body of believers in this Judean countryside. You know, the question is, you know, is my ministry growing or shrinking? What does that guy have that I don't have? You know, one of the things that we think about is in the midst of critique is are we praying for other churches to thrive? <laughs> or are we secretly thinking, like, they have something I don't have. I wish they had it. And if they did, if we had what they had, then we would be successful and feel good about ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we are called to pray for other gospel-believing churches in our community. We're to lift them up in prayer. Like, I want other churches that believe the gospel and are leading people to faith and repentance in Jesus alone, I want them to flourish and grow. Now, I say that, but I also want our church to flourish and grow, right? You know, there was, um, there's a sense in which, you know, we get caught up within ourselves and our own selfishness. And if we see somebody else's ministry... Um, maybe uh, growing quicker than ours. You know what we do? We begin to criticize that ministry. Well, obviously, they must not not be doing something right. This is what we see in John chapter 3, because they're arguing over Jewish laws of purification, and they're thinking, well, you know, Jesus must not be doing it right. We need to take market share back by saying they're not doing it right. Now, let me say this. There are churches in town that I would pray that they would actually have faith and repentance in Jesus, or they would shut their doors. Because I don't want to see anybody leading anybody else astray you know, by a false gospel or you know, some sort of um, you know, just wickedness that we see. I mean, some churches need to shut their doors or have revival. But churches that are preaching the gospel, we want them to flourish and grow. We, I mean, think about it. Think about your neighborhood that you live in. I mean, some of you live out in the country, so you know, whatever. But you know, think about all the houses you pass back on the way to your neighborhood, right? I want you to think about this. How many lost people are you driving by Today? How many people need to hear the name of Jesus and be saved? We need lots of churches in our town. We need lots of Bible believing, Christ centric, gospel transforming churches within our town who are not using gimmicks to bring people in, but rather are using the gospel. And the word of God to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. The difficulty there is that, you know, look at what John does. John uses this, um, he uses a metaphor here. Because again, John could feel insecure. He could have this comparison with Jesus, but look at what he says to his disciples. You know, he says to them, you know, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Meaning, That what Jesus has has been given to him from heaven. I have what is given to me from heaven. What you have, the skills, gifts, and abilities, and everything that you have is heaven sent. Essentially what he's saying is be content with what you have. The secret to contentment, by the way, if you don't know this, is not by accumulating more things. It is being in a position or a posture of gratitude for all that has been heaven sent from God to you. He says, you know, and he goes on to say, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Again, he already says, like, didn't you guys listen to me? I said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world twice in the Gospel of John. And I'm telling you another time, I'm telling you twice, I'm not the Christ. I'm the forerunner of Jesus. You need to be trusting and believing in Jesus. He is greater. And then that's a beautiful picture of how one is called to decrease as Jesus increases. And he uses this analogy. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, which is really what he's saying about himself. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, here's the friend of the bridegroom that you need to know about. The friend of the bridegroom, this, this word, this shoshben. Has, been, has had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. William Barclay says this. He acted, this best man, he acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding, even though it was funded by the groom. He's, he's sort of the MC. He's working to have all these things. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together, and he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. Now that's not as big a deal today, right? Like that's not, but that was his job. It was to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad to let him in and he went away rejoicing for his task was completed." John the Baptist said he found his fullness of joy in his master's voice. Now think about that. This is what we see that is going on there. The the bridegroom's friend, he wants to be a part of the wedding, but he knows it's not about him. He doesn't want to upstage Jesus or the bride. You know, and at this point, when we think about the bride and the bridegroom, the bridegroom is Jesus. And the bride of Christ is the church. It is the people of God who are uniting through faith and belief in Jesus. And so what he's saying is, I want everyone, I want everyone to come to the bridegroom. Like, it would be offensive. I mean, I don't, I don't know when the last time you guys went to a wedding. But let's say you know, a bride is coming down. And as she's coming down, the best man at the wedding is like, hey, how are you doing? You know? Think about that for a second, right? He starts making eyes at the bride as she comes down. Matter of fact, maybe he even steps in front of the bride or the bridegroom and says, Hey, well, come on over. You look nice. I look nice. We're all dressed up. You know, like that's John saying, that's not what we're supposed to do. He goes, I'm here to unite as many people as I possibly can to Jesus because Jesus loves the bride. I am simply the best man and want to do the best by Jesus. He must increase; I must decrease. This is what's interesting sometimes for people when we think about this. That um, we we think about um, this idea of of the bridegroom, and and some people will say, you know, like I love Jesus, but I don't really love the church. anybody ever heard anybody say that? Like I love Jesus, but I don't really love the church. Well, the reality is, Jesus, what he loves the most, what he gave himself up, what he died for was his people who is the church. Just for a second, um, if somebody came up to me and said, man, Boomer, I love you, man. Like, you are my best friend. I love spending time with you. I I just want to be around you. I love being around you. But I got to tell you, I don't like your wife at all. I mean, again, my wife's great, right? I mean, like, there are a lot of people who probably don't like me like her. But, you know, I would probably say, I don't think I like you. (laughs) That's the reality. Like, if you say you like me, but you don't like the bride, and this is what Jesus is saying. Now, this is weird, because I'm making myself out to be Jesus, and that's no way. You know, like, you should never do that as a pastor. But here's the reality. If you love Jesus, you will love the bride of Christ, which is the church, which is the people of God. And as we, as we think about these things, um, this idea of the, the friend of the bridegroom, that we are all called to be the friend of the bridegroom, where we want to you know, have Jesus increase and us decrease. William Carey, at the end of his life, when he was on his deathbed, um, they, he actually said, please don't remember William Carey. Remember William Carey's Savior. Remember Jesus. Now, who is Jesus? Like the commentary that we see in, in John chapter 3, um, as we continue on, really there's a, a summation statement here. You know, the Father in verses 35 and 36 the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, just prior to that in verse 34, he says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. There's this idea that those who have believed, like through the, the You know, again, what God has given us, think about this, we are given the Holy Spirit without measure. It just continues on to be just poured grace upon grace upon grace and mercy upon the people of God. And what we find here is that this measure, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then in verse 36, it's it's almost a tie back to John 3.16, where it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's this idea, and this really is the gospel here working itself out, is that if you believe in the Son, you believe in Jesus, you believe that he died for your sins, then you have eternal life. If you don't believe, actually it says if you don't obey, because there's this idea that if you believe in Jesus, you will obey Jesus. Sometimes we separate that out, right? We go like, yeah, I love Jesus. I love, like, I believe in him. I believe in him. And then he says, but hey, I want you to do this now. You're like, well, there's grace, right? Like, I can do whatever I want, right? True belief in Jesus will cause you to obey all that Jesus has done. There's this idea of faith and repentance. And part of repentance is turning away from sin and self-trust and obeying the voice of Jesus. You see, the the gospel message is this, is that when Jesus was on the cross, uh, the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus for the sins of everyone who would believe in Him, past, present, and future. All of your sins, all the penalty for your sins were paid upon Jesus on the cross. And the wrath of God, the righteous, holy wrath of God, that is a righteous judgment from a good father and a good judge, Upon the wicked befalls Jesus in your place. You see, the the reality is this. Somebody is going to pay the penalty for your sins. It will either be yourself or Jesus. That's it. There's only two, two opportunities there. It's either Jesus or you. And that's what we see in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son... Has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, again, as we think about this idea of you know self-glory and vain glory, and, and wanting to lift ourselves up, or there's times where we want Jesus to lift ourselves up, like we want to promote Jesus in the midst of our, our lives. But our, our thought is, if I promote Jesus and lift Jesus up, then I will be lifted up alongside him. I will follow on his coattails. But what happens sometimes is by lifting Jesus up on this world, on this side of glory, we will actually be, you know, forsaken or persecuted or rejected or, you know, just removed from areas of influence and and we don't like that. And yet, what we see is that Jesus alone is worthy. Let me uh, end before we get to communion with this story. I love this story about... Um, this is about Charles Spurgeon. And there was a, a great um, preacher back then. His name was Joseph Parker. And this is in London um, you know, a long time ago. You know, 150 years ago or so. And there's a story... And these were the great preachers in London at the time. And the story is told of a group of American Christians who went over to London. And and their friends said, hey, we want to hear um, your report on the very best preachers in London. The guys who were the best. And they were like, and we want to hear about Joseph Parker. And we want to hear about Charles Spurgeon. We want to hear what you have to say. So their friends from the States said that they wanted to hear a report of the best preacher. Who was better? And on Sunday morning... This group of Americans, they went to hear a man called Joseph Parker, a man famed for his eloquent oratory. And as they departed from the service, one of them exclaimed, I do declare, maybe he was from the South, I don't know. I do declare, it must be said, for there is no doubt that Joseph Parker is the greatest preacher that, has, that there ever was. The group longed to go back and hear Parker in the evening. I just want to stop there. Uh, anyway, oh, no, I'll keep going. All right. The group longed to go back and hear Parker in the evening, but they remembered their friends would ask, that, ask about Charles Spurgeon as well. So that night they attended the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was preaching. And as they departed, they spoke in marveling terms I do declare it must be said that there is no doubt that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior there ever was. You see the difference? The difference is saying, I must decrease so that Jesus must increase. Why do we believe that? Because we believe the good news that if we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. But if we do not obey him and believe him, the wrath of God is still upon us. You see, if, if you have trusted and believed in Jesus, then you know that you are saved by his substitution on the cross. You know, what we have before us is we have you know, bread, which represents the body of Christ. We have this, this juice, which represents his, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. And as we come to this table, we come and we say, I am saved only by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. In 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11 the Apostle Paul gives this as the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup Is the new covenant in my blood? Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remember, we remember that we're saved not based upon what we do, but who we believe in. We're saved based upon the good works of Jesus Christ. We're saved because the wrath of God befalls our sin on the cross we remember, and we rejoice. And it is our hope as a church, as the people of God, that we would magnify the name of Jesus, and that people would hear it on our lips, and that they would come to faith and belief in Jesus. If you do not believe and trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then I would say don't partake of this meal, but rather choose Jesus this day. Where else in this world will you find forgiveness? Where else in this world will you find purpose and peace in your life? The only place that you can find eternal rest is in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that you would use these elements. Father, they will always be bread and juice. Father, But I pray, Lord, that you would use them and you would pour forth grace upon grace upon us. That we would trust and believe that we would trust in all that you have given us, and that, Father, that we would rejoice in Christ. Father, help us. Help us to believe. Help us to delight. Help us to diminish. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.